there was a lot of, I felt, I, I accepted Saturday's loss. And I was frustrated by the fact they couldn't hit their bullpen. But I also know when you have a six-game winning streak, as much as I would want it to be a nine-game winning streak or a 15-game winning streak, you're not going to win every single game. My key with these winning streaks are that when they end, you got to start a new one. So you win six in a row, you lose a game, then you got to respond with four in a row. Because you do that, that's the run that the Mets need. And unfortunately, they responded to their six-game winning streak with a two-game losing streak. I, the one thing I will say is, I, again, I, I understand Saturday. I kind of don't even mind Sunday because they're going to the All-Star break. Like, I, I I would hate for them to win the eight games in a row, go to the All-Star break, and then start being crappy again and be like, oh, well, if they just had more they, – they finally found their stride, they took a day off. And then that that kind of killed their momentum. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm fine with them losing two in a row, and let's let's up ticket yeah, after but, the break. But, but, By Pete, the way, Pete, Pete, they don't have the, they don't have the time to lose two. Oh, in I a get row. it. There's no, six games it. under 500. They are eight games out of a wild card spot. Like they got to make their move now. I know, and they will. I feel confident. By the way, the one will. thing the one thing about Saturday that you have not you mentioned early, but you have to kill him. Francisco Lindor defensively lost this game. That second inning was was mostly on him too. Yeah, it was um it was rough. So Sanchez leads off with a double. Then you've got a ground ball to shortstop by Cronenworth. And I don't know if Lindor would have thrown him out. This one was not called an error, but it was a ground ball to shortstop, and Lindor could not kind of get rid of the baseball. I think it would have been a very close play at first base, but if he throws him out, there's a runner on third one out. And now you've got yourself a chance to get through it. Then you had that really weird play where Brandon Dixon, the DH, had a fly ball to right field, and Starling Marte just didn't catch it. Like, he didn't get to it in time and was able to throw out uh, Cronenworth at second base. The problem was the home run. So, yeah, Lindor had a bad defensive game. Luckily, the two errors that he made in the sixth and eighth inning did not come back and haunt them because none of those runs scored. So, really, the defensive play that may have had an impact in terms of runs being scored was that ground ball to shortstop by Cronenworth, which it's not an error, and I don't know if he throws him out at first base, but he bobbled it or he couldn't get the grip of it, and it turned out to be an infield hit, and it set up San Diego with first and third nobody out, but it was the one mistake by Peterson. The other errors by Lindor were a little alarming. He has not had a great defensive season. He hasn't. Now, his offensive numbers now look good. You know, the home runs and RBIs have been there for a while, but his batting average has been rising. His OPS has been rising. And I think when you just think about what his final line is on pace to be, you realize, wow, that's one of the best shortstops in baseball. It really is because Xander Bogart's numbers aren't looking anywhere close to that. Carlos Correa's numbers aren't looking anywhere close to that. Trey Turner's numbers aren't looking anywhere close to that. So all these high-priced shortstops who Lindor is in the same group of, I mean, right now, if you had to pick any one of those guys, who do you want on your team? The answer is going to be Lindor. You know, we just watched Xander Bogarts for the week. Yeah, his average is a little bit higher. He's got 10 home runs and 35 RBIs. It's not quite 19 home runs and 60 RBIs. Not quite. So I, Lindor offensively, fine. Defensively, 
especially over the last few weeks. It's not just him. It's everybody like guys who are supposed to be good defensively have not been. Now I know Nimmo overall has had a great defensive year and lately he's made some good catches, but he even had the two significant miscues, one against the Yankees, one against the Phillies. It's infectious. You know, the one guy who I think mostly has been good, even though he made an error the other night is Pete, Pete Alonso, even during this offensive slump has made some very nifty plays over at first base. No, I I agree. We said that from the beginning of the season, and for the most part, he has been pretty flawless. And I think that was the credit to him trying to work harder because I, I, we talked about his war numbers and blah, blah, blah. I don't think he gets any credit for his defensive skills. A lot of people minimize what he does, and I, don't, I, I think that they're overlooking how good defensively he's become as a first baseman. He's had a, a really good defensive year. So I think it was on the last Rico I had mentioned how the Mets had won a game and they had won a game where Alonzo and Lindor did nothing. And there was something kind of cool about that because it seems like they only win when they're productive. And I think the game I was talking about was the July 5th game when Alvarez hit the game-tying home run and then Canna hit the game-winning RBI triple. Lindor was 0 for 4. Alonzo was 0 for 4. And even the night before, the day before, they only had one hit by Francisco Lindor. Alonzo took an 0-4. Lindor didn't do much other than that. And they won. They made the comment to you, hey, it's always great when they can win and not get a lot of production out of Lindor and Alonzo because it feels rare. Well, we've got some real loyal listeners to the Rico who feel like they should do the research for us sometimes. And I appreciate that because there's a lot of times we do the research for you. But Jimmy Kearney did the research for us. Now, I want to make something clear. Jimmy seems like a great guy. So did I fact check Jimmy Kearney? I did not. I did not. (laughs) I am trusting Jimmy Kearney. I am trusting he didn't just email us and make up stats. Now, if you want to fact check Jimmy Kearney, you're more than welcome to. And then you can send us an email, the RicoB at gmail.com saying, hey, guys, do you remember when you waxed poetic about Kearney's statistician and all the stats he gave you, well, they were all a bunch of crap. So I will give everybody that opportunity. But what Jimmy did was he looked up how the Mets do when Lindor and or Alonzo don't perform. And I'm going to read you his exact email. In 2022, that's a year ago, Pete went 53 games without a hit. Okay, there were 53 games where Pete Alonzo did not get a base hit. The Mets record in those 53 games. You want to guess? You want me to just tell you, Pete? 53 games without a hit. I'm going to say they went 10 and 43. Well, that's crap. <laughs> 10 no? and 43. <laughs> no, they were, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were 22 and 31. They were nine games under 500. Francisco Lindor had 38 games without a hit. The Mets were 16 and 22. They were only 12 games during the entire season where neither guy got a hit. The Mets were four and eight. That's a record of 34 and 45 when one or both guys didn't get a hit. Now, last year, the Mets won 101 games. So when they got a hit, their record was 67 and 16. Overwhelming. This year, and this is as of, I'm not sure if he included, you know what? I think he did include Sunday. I think Jimmy sent this email like after the Sunday game. So great work by him. 90 games into the 2023 season, the Mets are 16 and 18 when Pete is hitless 
and 11 and 22 when Lindor is hitless. There have already been 10 games, 10 games, which is almost as many as last year, when Pete and Lindor have both gone hitless. This does not include Pete Elston, obviously, because he wasn't playing. The Mets have a three and seven record. So clearly, the numbers have backed up what we've all thought, which is they don't hit, they don't win. Like it's a rarity for the Mets to win games when Alonzo and Lindor aren't productive. Lindor has been productive, especially over the last few weeks. Pete Alonzo has been not, has not been. So keep it in mind as this season rolls on. Uh, Couple of other things. Amir Garrett was DFA'd by the Kansas City Royals. Amir Garrett, you'll see his ERA and say, wait a second, it's not that bad. What's going on? He walks everybody. His control's a major issue. He's had a lot of traffic. But would I bring him in? Of course I would, because the Mets need to try things without costing themselves their farm system. So no one is going to say, especially now at, you know, six games under 500. Yeah, they got to go make a big trade. I'm not in favor of that, but I am in favor of ways to try to improve this roster. Acquiring Trevor Gott made sense. All it cost was money, and they're giving him a flyer, and they're going to see what he can do. And so far, two performances in, not bad. Amir Garrett's a local kid, obviously, played at St. John's. He's a big, tall lefty. He's had nasty stuff. He's had major control issues. He's a project, I'll admit it. I don't expect him to come in here and dominate, but why not? Why the hell not? So, yeah, I'm all for it. He'd be replacing TJ McFarlane. That's that's the easiest argument to make. I mean, when we sit here, and I don't do this as much, but I know a lot of Met fans do. I've heard you say it. Salah said it. Get rid of this guy. Get rid of that guy. The reason I don't do it that much is not because I love these guys, but it's because I also know what the hell's the alternative. Now, you can hate Drew Smith all day, to say get rid of Drew Smith, what with with what? Like who's coming in and pitching those innings? Don't take this as a defense of Drew Smith or Adam Adovino, whoever else you rip, but you need someone to come in. Amir Garrett, not that he's that much better of an option, but why not? So KC's DFA'd him, bring him in. He's and one other th- thing. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Pete. Your, no, t- okay. your take he, on that. I mean, and I I, I don't I'd say he's only 31 years old. It's not that old for a reliever because we saw Tommy Hunter being rolled out left and right at 36 or whatever, whatever he was. This is this is a perfect rebound spot for him. If he wants to save his career at all, this might be a final stop for, for Garrett, and this is a good opportunity. He's going to get opportunities if the Mets can pick him up. If the Mets are ever going to be the Dodgers like they want to be or a successful team year in and year out, there are a lot of ways you can get there. They're obviously spending. But one of the other things they need to do is develop pitchers and find reclamation projects and fix them. You've got to do that. Now, no team is perfect, but I can sit here and give you examples where teams have done that, where the Atlanta Braves have done that, where the Houston Astros have done that, even where the Yankees have done that. I mean, Clay Holmes was not exactly a top-line reliever before the Yankees acquired him. So Amir Garrett's the kind of guy where Hey, if you want to be a winning organization, you have to bring guys in sometimes and turn them around. And Amir Garrett certainly has the stuff, so why not? And speaking of the Dodgers, Keith Law, who writes for The Athletic, did a a countdown, did a ranking. And usually I don't really care about these rankings, like, ooh, who's the 10 best shortstops? It's just opinion. What does it mean? I I don't really care. 
I don't get nuts about that kind of stuff. But what I do like with rankings is of things that we're not as familiar with. You know what I mean? Like who the best shortstop is. Yeah, we could all look up the numbers and try to assume. Farm systems. We are not knowing everything about every farm system. We try to know as much about the Met farm system as we can, and that's very difficult. So Keith Law is an expert on farm systems. Doesn't make this list perfect. It just means it's it's interesting to look at where he ranked organizations in terms of their collective farm system. Not the top, top prospect, but all of it, the entire system. He put the Mets 15th. Okay, you know, middle of the pack is what it is. Nothing embarrassing. But here's what jumped out at me. Do you know what team was number one with the best farm system in Major League Baseball, according to a well-respected writer named Keith Law? I, I want to say the Braves, but it's going to be something stupid like the A's. No, it's the Los Angeles Dodgers. And the reason why that jumps out at me is that the Los Angeles Dodgers traded so much in their farm system over the last few years in attempting to win. Like they traded for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer, and they gave up a bushload of prospects. And yet they have replenished so much that they got the best system in all of Major League Baseball. So when Steve Cohen talks about being the Dodgers, to me, that's where it's at, where you could have such a loaded farm system that not only are you developing guys, I know Miguel Vargas just got sent back down to AAA and Josh Altman hasn't had the greatest year in the world, but you continue to develop guys who can help you at the major league level and then also have the pieces to trade for Trey Turner which they did a few years ago, and Max Scherzer, which they did a few years ago. And I hope the Mets can get to that point. (laughs) I I really do. Not just having a system where guys come up and help this team, but where you can use those pieces to acquire guys who maybe put you over the top and help you win a World Series. I think that's a great testament to what the Dodgers have pulled off, that they are so good every year, and yet they maintain this loaded farm system, and yet they have the ability to use that farm system to trade for players to help them in the short term. And that's where we got to get. That's where the Mets have to be. So coming out of the break against that same team we're talking about, the L.A. Dodgers, Justin Verlander is scheduled to pitch the Friday night game. Kodai Senga is going to pitch the Saturday game. I guess that's dependent on if Kodai pitches in the All-Star game. Congratulations to him. He's going to the All-Star game as a rookie. And then our buddy Max Scherzer will come back on Sunday afternoon against the Dodgers and probably crap the bet, because that's what he does. So it's going to be a challenge. They have the Dodgers coming out of the break. They do have the White Sox, and the White Sox have had a miserable, miserable season. And at some point, you know, we've talked about how they need a long winning streak. They had the six-game winning streak. That is not enough. They got to get to 500 quick. Like, to me, Pete, they got to get to 500 by August 1st. Is that asking too much, to get to 500 by August 1st? No, I think that I think that's a, a good spot, and I think that they have plenty of time to get there. I know it's it sounds like the, sh- the season is much shorter now, and it is, but I mean they have till what they have three weeks left, four weeks left. Is it three weeks, twenty one days, whatever it is, man? Well, they've I- got fifteen games left in the month of July, so there's six games under five hundred. So what do they have to do to get to five hundred with fifteen games left? They've got to go. Uh, yeah, this doesn't feel realistic. <laughs> <laughs> they gotta go eleven and four. They're, they're six. <laughs> Who are they playing? How they how weak is the go, schedule? They have to go eleven and four to get to. They would actually be above five hundred. They go eleven and four 
they would go into August 1st, one game above 500. Now, here are the teams they're playing. Three against the Dodgers. Can they win two out of three against them? Yes. Okay. Three against the Chicago White Sox. I think they have to win all three, basically, right? I bet they could struggle versus them. Okay, continue. Three in Boston against the Red Sox. Yes. Two in the Bronx against the Yankees. Yeah, so win one game, yeah. And then four at home against the Nationals. Yeah, they're going to be like eight and eight and eight and seven, probably eight right. Like, seven. I mean, let me tell you something right now. Treading water is not enough. Okay, that is that is not eight and seven is not good enough. Hey, can I tell you something? Here's the ridiculous thing: if you look at the teams they just beat, they beat the Giants, who were how many games over five hundred? They beat the they swept the the Diamondbacks, who were in first place in their division. And how many games over 500? And they go against the Padres, who are identical to them, and they get embarrassed the last two games. And that is the problem. They're going to face Chicago, who is not a good team, and they're going to face Washington, who's not a good team. And those are the two teams that scare me more than anybody else. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, they have they have crapped the bet against bad teams. It's the honest truth. We get to a couple of a couple of your emails. We will have a Rico Bronia that we will post midweek during this All-Star Week in which we recap the first half. We'll go through the best wins of the first half, the worst losses of the first half. And my favorite part, we're going to hand out awards. We're going to name the MVP of the first half, the Cy Young of the first half, and the biggest bust of the first half. couple of emails. Lucas writes, Scherzer ruined the offseason for us, and now he ruins the All-Star break for us. He'll announce he's picking up his options so the torture continues for another 15 months. Oh, the pain. Daniel writes, I was born in 79. I've loved the Mets since 86. I live and die with any every game. Anyway, after today's awful loss, Sunday's awful loss to the fathers, I was reading a popular Mets fan blog thread. It astonished me that there was so much angst about all the other failings of this team. Max Scherzer has consistently pitched not well enough in the biggest games since the Mets signed him as a free agent. And since the end of the regular season, his performance has stopped the Mets from winning big games that excellent teams win. That's the risk you take when you sign a nearing the end mercenary. He's been okay, but he's paid to be the top of the league and he's not there anymore. I wish the fan base would stop searching for reasons why the Mets are disappointing. Diaz being out, Scherzer and Verlander being just okay. It's as simple as that. Residual impact of those three things are massive. I think those are three of the main things. Like, you're right. And, and, you know, we could do a list. And you know what? That's a great idea, Daniel. We're going to do a list on that mid-All-Star Week podcast as well, as well as all those awards. We will list our reasons for why the Mets suck and why this has been such a disappointing first half. And I think those are probably the main reasons, but there's a lot of reasons. When you're this bad with this much talent, there's a lot of reasons. Charlie writes, I have an odd feeling Pete's going to break out of his slump right after the All-Star break. I think the Derby is going to give him the opportunity to relax and change his approach. I know the Derby is known to do more harm than good, but I honestly think Pete just needs to relax and swing the bat. Now I got to get to the email that says Pete Alonso is a selfish bastard for doing the home run derby <laughs> because I have that in the mailbag as well. Here we go. Isaac writes with Pete Alonso struggling 
whether it's for injury or slump, wouldn't it be smart to rest and clear the mind and not do the home run derby? With this selfish behavior, is it time to not extend Pete and trade him for a top-end young starter and eventually use Alvarez Pareda platoon catcher at first base? I just think. <laughs> so we got one guy saying the Derby's going to fix Pete and Isaac saying he's a selfish guy. Trade him. <laughs> what, what do you honestly, what is your opinion up here right now? Because I think it's multifaceted. I think that you're right. That he was struggling before he got hurt, but I think that the injury is still nagging him right now. I think it's both. Yeah, I think it's both. I think if he wasn't slumping prior to the injury, it would be easy to join the chorus of saying, Hey, he came back too early. I think Pete is having a very odd year. He's been better defensively, like we talked about. The power numbers are there. I mean, he could still hit 50 home runs this season. Like, it's on the table that he has a 50 home run year. But the average is just sinking like a stone. He's striking out a lot. I always think, or I thought over the last few years, that he's gotten a bad rap as like a slugger first. Like, he hits a lot of home runs, but he's a good hitter. And I think he's a better hitter than people have given him credit for, but not this season. So he's not having a great year. I hope he turns it around. I am not in favor of trading him like Isaac suggested. I'm also skeptical that you would get back what you want because he's a guy who's going into his free agent year. That's the truth. Pete, next year, that's a contract year. So if you're another team that would be trading for him, what are they giving up? Like, think about it. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a straight-up example. Would you trade Pete Alonso to Cleveland for Shane Bieber? No, I, I wouldn't personally. Yeah, I mean, they're both, is it Bieber's not signed long-term either, right? That's my point. That, that's exactly why I brought him up. I brought him up because he's in the same boat. I don't think an organization is going to give up like four uber top prospects for a guy who's a free agent and they may not sign. And that, I'm ignoring the fact that I don't, I don't want to trade him. I want to extend him. Like, I'm leaving that part out, but when people bring up trades, let's think clearer about what you're getting back, and let's be realistic about what you're getting back. Now, I just made up that Bieber thing. I'm not necessarily saying Cleveland would do that or or whatnot, but, you know, Isaac writes a top-end young starter. Well, Shane Bieber's a top-end young starter. And here's the other thing that's scary. Sandy Alcantara, when we talked about him during the offseason, would have been a dream acquisition. It's coming off a of Cy Young. He's young. He gives you big innings. He has had a terrible season. And you start to kind of fear pitching. Like, you need pitching. You want pitching. But I'm scared of it, man. Like, how many guys are that reliable? So the way I view starting pitching, and we'll talk a lot more about this as we head to the offseason, is that I'll give you the money, and I'll risk the money. I'm not risking top prospects. I'm not risking trading, you know, a slugger like Pete Alonso. That I don't want to risk. I don't want to do it because the pitching is so volatile. There are very few guys who are consistent year after year after year. It's a very short list. We do appreciate all the emails. I got to meet Casey Manning the other day. Casey writes emails all the time. Casey showed up to fan baseball, so it's good meeting him. And we do appreciate all the emails at the RicoB at gmail.com. We will give you another Rico Bronia midweek during All-Star Week. As we recap the first half, and then obviously second half begins in earnest on Friday night against the Dodgers. Obviously, if there's any other breaking news or something crazy happens, we'll try to fit in an instant reaction when we can. We do appreciate you listening and downloading another edition of Rico Bronya.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.